morning we will read um, Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 5 through uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, um, which is probably long enough to let you remain seated. Um, So give your attention to the reading of God's word. Uh, To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this, the very word of God. You have um, inspired these words. Uh, You have preserved them. And we ask that now you would be at work in them and through them in our own hearts. Uh, Draw in us to uh, draw us to a deeper um, and abiding faith in Christ, a deeper love for Christ, our Savior. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You know, one of those areas where um, where we in our world today, the, the, the church in the 20th, 21st century, um, perhaps maybe misses um, much of what the Bible teaches. If you want to pick sort of that subject um, about which we seem really confused um, somewhere on the list, I don't know how many of us will think of this, but I think somewhere on that list has to be the subject of angels. B- because if you, if you think about what we think about angels today, um, you're left with two observations. One, you can run up to the local Christian bookstore and see the little fat-faced babies with the cheeks. And you just want to pinch those cheeks. And they might have little wings on them. But we had this sort of notion from the, the, the Christian bookstore kind of world that there's these little 
you know, figurines and they've got these, you know, it's always a baby, they're always bald, they always have these really chubby, cute baby cheeks. But if you ride around town and pay attention to the stickers on the backs of cars, there's this notion that somehow we die and become angels as though that were some, um, I don't know, the next step in sort of our, our spiritual evolutionary process, right? Like we move from where we are to we die and then we become an angel. We get our wings and we, we become an angel um, like the other angels. The reality is both of those, if you really read the Bible and pay any attention at all, both of those are way off the mark. We miss, here's the thing though, where we miss is different from where the original audience misses. We miss in thinking too lowly of angels. They missed by thinking too highly of them. They had begun, it appears, this first century predominantly Jewish audience, um, uh, and and you can tell even this chapter is a little bit, um, it can be a little difficult to read because you have, you know, two words, a word, and, and then another quote. But of the son, he says, of the angels, he says, and, and the writer's quoting from the Old Testament. He's actually quoting from the Septuagint. That's the fancy word for the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament written in Hebrew, translated into Greek before Jesus came. I mean, it's older than that. And, and so he's using predominantly the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, which tells me he's probably not writing to Jewish people in Jerusalem, but to people with a, a Jewish background, um, but whose first main language is Greek. But he's writing to correct the fact that they seem to be actually ascribing to angels things that ought to be reserved for Jesus alone. They are, are actually worshiping angels because of all the great and amazing things they did in the Old Testament. They're missing, they're making too much of the angels. We miss by making too little of them. Cute little baby, something we become when we die. Like, it's not even really that spectacular. And so the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, writes to correct that view. In fact, the, the, the whole of the letter, the whole of the book is written to tell us that Jesus is better than fill in the blank. Um, and if you pay attention, um, the plan is right now, at least as far as I've got it planned, every sermon title is going to be a better blank. And you're just going to fill in the blank. I mean, well, you're not going to fill in the blank. It'll be filled in for you. But the point is, like, the entire book is, is laid out to accomplish just that purpose. The writer isn't writing to add Jesus to the mix. He's writing to call their attention to the fact that they are missing the mark. Now, let me say a word. This seems like a reasonable place. Um, because inevitably... Uh, the question will come up if I try to ignore it. I ignored it last week, and I've decided I can ignore it. Any, I can't ignore it any longer. Uh, the question of who wrote Hebrews. Um, I, I'm not going to tell you who wrote Hebrews because we don't know. I will tell you it wasn't Paul. 
I know that was the the assumption by many, but just and here's why I'm doing this is because it comes up in this passage. Look at chapter two, verse three. Did you notice the writer got the message about Jesus, not from Jesus, but from people who got the message from Jesus? So Jesus is teaching his apostles. And so this would be sort of a, a second generation, if you would, if you want to use that kind of that mindset. Um, a second generation um, hearer of the gospel. Um, because you find out that it was declared by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. Paul goes to great lengths in Galatians 1 to say, I got this from the Lord. And so if we say this is Paul, then Paul has, writing, has rewritten his own account of how he came to saving faith in Christ. So it's not Paul. Um, the list includes people like Barnabas, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, Luke, which I find rather intriguing, actually. Um, because notice... Um, turn to the end, and at the end in, in Hebrews 13, the very next to last verse. Hebrews 13, verse 23, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. And so it's someone who knows Timothy, and is Timothy still alive? So it's written probably early to mid-60s. Um, by someone who knew Paul, who knew Timothy, um, who knew the gospel but wasn't himself one of the twelve or one of the original apostles. Of course, that's part of the reason, I think, that the book begins where it began last Sunday. The, the reality is we don't need to know. Because ultimately, regardless of who put pen to paper, ultimately, God is the one speaking. God spoke through the prophets. God spoke back then through the old days to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he's speaking by his son. And the only thing that changed, you noticed last week, is the speaker. The only thing that didn't change was the speaker. Because God himself is speaking here through his word. And he writes, he communicates, he records this to call his people to a, a, a rearranging of the worship they're ascribing to these angels. Something that we know intuitively and yet would do well to think about, which is greater a servant or a son? Uh, which is greater, the creator or the creature? Uh, which is greater, the one giving the law or the one carrying the law to its recipients? That is, in essence, the argument that we are about to read. That's, in essence, the argument of the remainder of chapter 1 and the first four verses of Chapter 2, because if you look at Psalm 68, we won't turn there, but it's Psalm 68, Deuteronomy 33. If you back up to Acts 7, Stephen, just as he's about to be stoned, as he's, as he's working his way through 
through redemptive history right off the top of his head. Imagine being able to do that. This is an aside, by the way. Just sort of struck me as I was making that sentence. As that sentence was coming out, you're surrounded by people who don't, who, who are mad at you. They're, 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 they don't want to hear what you're about to say and, and they're getting ready to stone you and, and you can run through the entire Old Testament story off the top of your head facing danger like that. But what Stephen does is he sort of refers to Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68 and he says, basically describes angels carrying the law from God to Moses. Now we just finished Exodus. And I didn't even mention that. Because it's not in Exodus. It is in other places where it seems that that the, the means by which God proclaimed the law of Moses to Moses, that somehow it was angels carrying this message back and forth. Whether they were writing or, or speaking, we're not given that exact information. But you find it here in chapter 2, verse 2. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Well, what's that message? What's the message he's talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the law of Moses. And so it seems that, uh, that angels were involved in carrying the, the law, carrying the message of the law of the Ten Commandments uh, and perhaps more back and forth from God to Moses. You see then that the Mosaic Law was true, was right, uh, was declared by angels and proved to be reliable. And yet, the writer goes on to make clear to us that Jesus is greater still than these angels. In fact, you see in verse 7 of, of chapter 1, he makes his angels winds and, and his ministers a flame of fire. They are they're messengers. They are servants. Um, they don't write the message. They merely carry the message. I was really tempted. Um, and then it dawned on me this might not be a good idea. Um, but... But I was really tempted to, to use the Siri command, um, you know, because you can write an email. You have an email client on your computer. You, have an, you, you can literally talk to your phone and ask that person. I can't say the two-word combination that we all know and love as Apple users because I don't know how many phones will react if I did. It could be fun, actually. But you can say, hey... Um, write me an email. But you know what she'll do? You know what she's going to say? Who do you want to send it to? And what do you want it to say? No, no, no. You just write it. She shouldn't do that. Why? Because she's merely a messenger. She's merely a, a carrier of the information. You are the source of it. And all she can do is announce or tell or say what you tell her to say. That's the comparison being made with the angels here in chapter 1. 
But that's not our image of angels. That's not a cute little cherub baby with chubby cheeks that you're just dying to pinch. That's not the picture that we have. Our view of angels is too low. But you could see the danger as we are so tempted to to overcorrect, right? Oh, well, if I'm thinking too lowly of them, let me swing way over here and we would end up swinging to where the original audience is now. And so the writer uses this series of contrasts between angels and Jesus. And I I really tried to come up with a really nice, handy, helpful, outline-y way to do this. And you you can't. I'm just, you can't. Um, I mean, maybe some people can. Maybe smart people can. But I couldn't. Um, But notice, first of all, uh, one of them, one of the contrasts has to do with their relationship to the Father. Because in verse 7, angels are ministers, they're servants, they're, they're messengers of the Word coming from God to His people. Jesus, on the other hand, verse 5, is a son. He actually has a a higher office. He has a a higher position. He has a a closer relationship to the Father because He's the eternal Son of God. Three persons in the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Equal in power. The same in substance. Equal in power and glory. The Son has a, a better relation. His relationship to the Father is superior to that of the angels. There's another contrast, and it has to do with worship. Because notice verse 6. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship him. And yet nowhere does Jesus ever worship angels. You worship the greater. You don't worship the lesser. And so nowhere is Jesus told, nowhere does Jesus worship angels, and yet we're told they worship him. And this is perfectly clear in the Gospels. We, we read this every year around Christmas time. Somewhere during December, Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day, you'll read Luke 2. You'll read about those shepherd guys that were hanging out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And suddenly, this announcing angel, right? He says, look, Jesus is here. The promised Messiah has been born. And suddenly the choir loft, the light turns on in the choir loft. And there's, there's thousands of angels with them. And what are they singing? Glory to God in the, in the highest. They're worshiping Christ. They're worshiping this baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. So they come to announce the birth of the Redeemer and then they unite their voices together to praise Him. That, by the way, is why you're singing a a Christmas hymn for our closing hymn. There's another contrast in verse 10. In verse 10, um, Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Jesus is the Creator. Again, Christmas, you read this in John 1, right? Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the one I'll never forget. 
when uh, Nancy and I uh, had gotten engaged, we were going to get married. And then you have the conversation, where do you get married? Uh, home church in Greenville was, was smaller, wasn't going to hold everybody. And so we got married in Columbia at, at my home church. And so to do that, you had to go chat with one of the pastors. And I'll never forget Lance Hudgens asking me the question, um, which person of the Godhead is responsible for creation? I got it wrong. It didn't occur to me that actually the Bible tells us they're all three involved in creation. That they all participate in, in everything being... And yet, angels are merely created beings. Jesus is the creator. Angels are, are created beings. Now, it just so happens that certainly the angels that this writer has in mind have never sinned. They've never rebelled against God. They're not guilty of cosmic treason like you and I are. But they're still just created beings. And so there's this contrast. He's the creator. They are merely creatures. There's another contrast in verse 8. Notice what he says to Jesus. Your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You know, one of the things, if you think about it, um, a throne is really just a chair, right? I mean, the, you, you can walk into Westminster Abbey and, and in the corner behind some bulletproof glass and all kinds of stuff is the coronation chair. And eventually, presumably, they're going to need that again. That's just a chair. Okay, it might be made of like gold and red velvet and have cool special emblems on it. But what sets it apart is its function. What makes it a throne, what makes a throne a throne isn't really that it's just a chair. It's that it's used by a monarch. It's used by a ruler. It's used by someone who governs and exercises power and authority. And so part of the picture then is Jesus is the king. Jesus holds the scepter of uprightness in his hand. He rules and reigns over all that he has made. Angels don't have thrones. In fact, if you read Isaiah 6, I'm not entirely certain they get to sit down. You kind of wonder, right? They've got six wings. How many of our angel images have six wings, right? None. The baby has two small, real tiny wings. Um, they have six, and they're covering their face, covering their feet, and they're flying. I don't know. Maybe they never get to sit down. Because as, as ministering spirits, they're always sort of at the ready. Jesus, however, has a throne. He rules and reigns. He's the king and they are merely among his subjects. And so the writer of Hebrews makes all these contrasts to show that Jesus is greater than the angels. And so what the initial audience needed to hear was, we're worshiping the wrong one. We're worshiping the wrong heavenly being, if you will. We're worshiping these angels when all the while, Jesus, who has, has come into the world to Save us from our sin. He is worthy of our worship. And He alone. He's greater than the things we're 
worshiping. So we should turn our attention to him. But you notice how verse, how chapter two, these first four verses sort of fit into the context of Jesus better than the angels. Incidentally, um, perhaps an aside, you know, there's, um, if you if you go listen to sermons in Hebrews, uh, you'll find that people don't really know what to do with the first four verses of chapter two. Um, you can read commentaries and people don't know what to do with the first four. One commentary I read actually said it's just a purely parenthetical statement. Um, I disagree. I think that what the writer of Hebrews is doing is actually recording for us not a letter, but a sermon. And what he does is as you read through the book of Hebrews, he stops to apply the word to his people as he goes. You'll notice that sometimes, not all the time, sometimes at the end of a sermon, I'll kind of ask the question, well, how does this passage apply to us? What does this have to do with us? I sometimes will save the, the application for the end. He works it into the, the context. You notice how Chapter 2, verse 1 begins. There's a therefore. It's connected to the stuff he's writing. Because everything I've written in chapter... Now, the chapter numbers weren't there, right? Because of everything I've written so far, therefore, let me pause and, and draw an implication, an application, an inference for you as God's people. And so the, these first four verses sort of serve as an application of the first chapter. Because notice there's another contrast. Or there's a, there's a lesser to greater going on in these verses. The message declared by angels, that, that is the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, declared by angels proved to be reliable. Every transgression or disobedience received the retribution it was supposed to receive. How much more this message? Well, notice the way this message is described. How shall, how shall we escape if we neglect? If the people who neglected that didn't escape, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. Attested to, the, to us by those who heard. While God himself bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. In other words, all three persons of the Trinity plus the apostles are all involved in communicating this gospel message. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are all at work. It was declared by the Lord, attested by those who heard it, testified to by God, confirmed by the gifts of the Spirit. Now remember, this is a letter written to Christians. This is a, this is a letter, a sermon preached, a sermon written to, a letter, humor me, right? I've told you I think it's a sermon. I'm pretty much going to call it a letter from here on out because I just can't help it. But it's a, it's a letter written to believers, to people who have professed faith in Christ and yet who are, it seems, tempted to go back to the old covenant ways, to go back to Judaism, to decide that Jesus maybe really isn't sufficient. It's written to Christians as a warning. 
don't forsake this gospel message. It's not written to unbelievers who, who've never believed it. It's not written to non-Christians who've, who've never said, who've never professed faith in Christ. It's written to professing believers as a warning to say, don't neglect the gift you've been given. How are the ways we are in danger of neglect, neglecting the gospel? If the, if the, if the giving of the law meant sure punishment for those who neglected it, how, how much greater danger would we be in if we neglected this gospel message? Well, what are the ways we're tempted to neglect this gospel? When, you, when we're regularly absent, preaching to the choir this morning, when we're regularly absent from the gathering of God's people where the means of grace are, this is, this is where the word and sacraments and prayer are to be found. When we sort of distance ourselves and make it a habit, a practice to, to regularly be gone, we're neglecting this gift that we've been given. Even if we're here, if we worship and participate half-heartedly, we're neglecting the gift that we've been given. If we ignore God's word and ignore opportunities to pray and remove ourselves from fellowship with God's people, if we treat the Lord's day just like any other day, we are neglecting the gift that God has given us. Ultimately, we neglect our gospel growth when we remove ourselves from the means of grace, the means that God has given to us to strengthen our faith, to, to point us over and over again to Christ because we are sinners, because we do need that, that constant pointing, we, because we are weak and feeble and distracted. These are the tools that God has given to strengthen our faith, to, to grow us in grace, to equip us for service in His kingdom. And so this passage warns us not to neglect that gift of the gospel. But it also serves as a warning to those who have never trusted in Christ. The law condemns. The law, those who are every transgression, every disobedience receives just retribution. And so the question is, how do I escape that? If my sin will receive just retribution, then how do I escape that danger, that threat, that reality of punishment for my sin? Well, the answer is simple. Look to the one that is greater than the angels. Look to the one who has brought the gospel, a message of salvation. The one who has fulfilled all that the, the angels delivered on behalf of God to Moses. That which condemns us, Christ has fulfilled for us. You look to Him. You look in Him in, in faith and, and trust in Him for His righteousness, for His obedience to be credited to you because He went to the cross to suffer and bleed and die, not for sin He committed, but for ours. Look to Christ, run to him, run to the cross, and there find forgiveness. 
Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your son uh, who does indeed rule and reign over all of creation, uh, who holds the scepter of uprightness in his hand, uh, but who has been made king because he was first a faithful priest, suffering the punishment that our sin deserves, uh, offering himself as a sacrifice uh, for our sin and defeating death itself by his resurrection. Would you remind us all over again of the glory of our Savior? And would you so grow in us a hunger and a thirst to know him that not only could we not be accused of neglecting this great salvation, but we would do all in our power uh, to, uh, to enjoy it, to delight in it, uh, to grow from it. We ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.